Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth about coming to church. We are the community of God's redeemed. We're not to forsake the gathering of the saints as a manner of some is in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. We come because we love Him. We come because He's chosen us. We come because He has promised to meet us not to show off our clothes, not to see who's driving the best car into the parking lot, but to hear his voice, to fellowship with him. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. With all the mistrust, greed, and dishonesty, It's no wonder it seems easier to be self-sufficient, to not depend on anyone but yourself. But that's not the way God designed us. Today, Pastor Xavier continues his study series in the book of Joshua by pointing out the virtues of belonging to and working with a strong group of believers. He begins with the text for today's Simple Truths. Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. The message is entitled, The Assembly of Faith. Joshua has been a courageous soldier. Having received his command directly from the Lord, God told him not to fear, to be strong, to be courageous, to obey the word of God completely as he made preparations across the Jordan in chapter 1. And so Joshua the soldier sent out two spies. They came to Jericho, and they heard from the mouth of Rahab the confirmation of of the word of the Lord, that God would deliver the people into their hands. Joshua was then not only a brave and courageous soldier, but he was a soldier of faith, moving on in what God said he would do. As he conquered the land, uh, he gave the tribes their proportions of the land, the divisions from chapter 10 up to chapter 21. It wasn't to his own discretion And the land of Transjordan, as you know, was divided into two and a half tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half-tribe of Manasseh, and then also then the nine and a half tribes on the um, west side. But God was doing the divisions, the promise he gave to Caleb and Hebron, and he asked for that, and God gave it to him. It was God who was doing it. Now, when we come to chapter 18, there are still seven tribes that had not received their inheritance. So Joshua gathers a nation, a Shiloh, uh, to exhort them to survey the land and to send out spies again and then come back and divide it to the seven tribes. There are three significant things revealed to us here at the gathering of the nation. Let me read here. Now, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Here's the three significant things revealed at the gathering of the nations here after all the conquest of the land. First, God had chosen the place of worship for the nation. Secondly, God had given them the manner of worship for the nation, and then God had conquered the land for the nation. It was all God's doing. Oh, how easy we forget. (laughs) It's so easy to forget. Let's begin here. God had chosen the place of worship for the nation. Listen to his words. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. The significance of Shiloh is great. The entire congregation uh, has removed the tabernacle from Gilgal, gathered it, and now sets it up there at Shiloh. It was to be the resting place of the ark which signifies the presence and the fellowship with God. 
That's what the ark signified. The word assembly there is the word kahal in Hebrew, and it's the Hebrew word that is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, by the word ecclesia, which is the word in the New Testament for church, the assembly, the gathering. Without any doubt, this was done by the appointment and direction of God to Eliezer the priest through the Urim and the Thummim or through direct voice to him. The removal of Shiloh was probably, at the same time, placed near where Joshua would govern Israel. Uh, he would reside in Ephraim, which he's of that tribe, and it would be more in the heart of the land, and it would be easier for all the tribes, wherever they were dispersed, to come so that no one would be at a disadvantage. We're going to see this also with the cities of refuge as we move on. This is probably about seven years, seven, eight years after they've entered the land, they conquered it. Again, it takes time for everything. One of the things that's difficult for Christians when they first come to the Lord is they want everything right now. Uh, some of you are coming out of the world and you're young or you're newly married and you've got kids and that. And in your mind, if you haven't been a Christian ever before or known about the Lord, you've got this mindset of the world that says you can have everything right now and you can get it. And life is not so like that. Everything takes time. You know, you're born about 20, 21 inches long. It takes a long time to get six foot two. You know what I mean? It takes a little while. You out and get the first job as a box boy or something, you know, you don't become a manager overnight. Everything takes time, and the Christian life is no different. Shiloh was uh, situated on the hill of the tribe of Ephraim, as I said, and though near the border of Benjamin, and uh, about 15 miles north of Jerusalem and north of Bethel, also on the highway to uh, Shechem. But Shiloh was a place of seat of government, where this is where Joshua had brought them into the land, a type of Jesus Christ, and here's where God has said, this is where I'm going to meet with the nation. It was God's doing. And so the prearranged place for the tribes by the one who had delivered them from Egypt. They were left to their own discretion. The history of Shiloh is interesting because Shiloh here now, it stood there since this day, and through the book of Judges also, we will see that uh, Shiloh was the center. In fact, Shiloh uh, was a place where people went to worship. Eli was a high priest. Remember in the book of Samuel, Samuel and Hannah's wife went up, and, and here's where she dedicated Samuel to the Lord. Except uh, Eli had a couple of uh, corrupt sons, and they uh, were ripping off the offerings and, and, and causing people to abhor the worship of God. They were laying with the women in the tabernacle, and uh, so God was going to take care of them. In fact, Shiloh was destroyed because of all that as they brought the ark into the war with the Philistines and boy, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were killed and when Eli was told, he was so big that he fell back on his chair and broke his neck. But God had told him, I'm going to judge you and your children. I'm going to judge your children because they're corrupt and I'm going to judge you because you never restrained them. Whoa, parents, woo, be careful. My, 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 said the spider to the fly. Awesome responsibility, parents. According to the Jewish writers, 369 years, even at the times of Samuel, when for the sins of the sons of Eli, the ark was removed. Now, 500 years later, down the road, Jeremiah the prophet says, Jeremiah 7, 12, But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it. 
because of the wickedness of my people Israel, because Israel was wicked that time. And they were going to the temple saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple, oh, we're safe here, we can sin, but we come to the temple, we're safe. And so then in verse 14 of chapter 7, Jeremiah, therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, talking about the temple now in Jerusalem, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. Whoa. Shiloh once stood for the glory of God. Now Jeremiah's looking back, it stood for the judgment of God. What makes the difference? Listen, three letters. Sin. That makes all the difference in the world. The very site was forgotten and unknown from the time of Jerome until the rediscovery by Dr. Robinson in 1838. There were numerous places where the ark was located throughout the history, as you know. Uh, it began with Mount Sinai, where Moses erected it there after the completion of it. And then it uh, came to Gilgal as they came across. It rested there. Now it's here at Shiloh. And then we find it in the house of Obadidim, or Abinadab, after the Philistines returned it. And it rested there for 20 years in uh, 1 Samuel 7.1. After that, we find it at Nob, where David went to Abimelech and said he's in a secret mission from the king as he was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 21. The next time we find it, we find that Saul or David is seeking out the ark in the house of Abinadab in the Philistine manner. And God killed Uzzah as he put his hand to the ark. David was a little petrified. It had been resting there for um, about three months. And then David went back after consulting the Levites, knowing which way to transport the ark. In other words, God has a means by which for us to live and to do things. We can't just do things the way we want to. We have to be scriptural. Now, I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm talking about being scriptural. And so David went back, as you know, in 2 Samuel 6, 3, 11, and 17, and he took it, he had the Levites carry it, he did sacrifice, and he put it in a temporary dwelling that he made there, a tabernacle in Jerusalem. Then we find the ark at Gibeon, where God appeared to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 16, 39. And finally in Jerusalem, as he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8. After that, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, 606, 596, 586, the final. The ark is taken. By the time Solomon got the ark, the only thing that was in it were the two tablets of stone. The pot of manna and the rod of Aaron had been stolen already. So some things never change. <laughs> you know, Jesus told the woman of Samaria that there was a time coming, and now was, at that time he was talking to her, where God was seeking those who worship him to worship him in spirit and in truth. So in other words, there is no special locality any longer for us to worship. God desires that you worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, the Holy Spirit. In truth, according to the Word of God, because the Holy Spirit never contradicts the Word of God, adds to the Word of God, or takes away from the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit turn, turns on the light to the Word of God. So we have all that we need for proper worship to God. And though we can see that Shiloh is the place God chose as the place of worship, yet there's another time that the word Shiloh appears in the first time in Genesis 
49.10, where Jacob is prophesying and it denotes the name of the Messiah, the peaceful one to come. In fact, the Vulgate version translates the word, he who is to be sent, an allusion to the Messiah. The revised version margin says, till he comes to Shiloh. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew says, until that which, which is his shall come to Shiloh. And the most simple and natural to render the expression is the authorized version, which says, till Shiloh come, interpreting it as a proper name. And that's the way it should be taken. So Shiloh here is a place, a locality, but when it's mentioned in Genesis by Jacob, it's talking about the proper name of the Messiah to come. It's quite illuminating. <laughs> God has chosen the place during the age of grace today for his people to meet. Here it is. You ready? The church. By the way, the church is not this building. The church is you and I. The assembly of the saints. The word is ecclesia which describes and identifies the people of God. Those who have been called out of the world, they've responded to God, to hear the voice of God, repenting from their sins. The word is used by the Greeks to describe a civil assembly of people as in Athens, and it's characterized by the following. Listen. They were citizens with power to declare war, peace, elect generals, and to raise funds. They began with prayer and sacrifice, by the way. They later used the word in a wider sense for a convened assembly of citizens as used in the book of Acts in Acts 19 where the assembly was questioned, the riot at Ephesus. Those identified as the church are those who are called out the people of God, you and I. We heard the voice of God. He says, you're a sinner, you're lost. I died for you. I can forgive you if you open your heart. And we responded and he saved us. And he took us from the world and he brought us into his church, his body. We are the community of God's redeemed. We're not to forsake the gathering of the saints as the manner of some is in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. We're to come. We come because we love him. We come because he's chosen us. We come because he has promised to meet us. Not to show off our clothes, not to see who's driving the best car into the parking lot, but to hear his voice, to fellowship with him. Not that you can't fellowship with him at home, and many people will say, well, where does it say you have to go to church? Well, Hebrews is one place, but there's many others. You're not the church, you're part of the church. <laughs> so you're together with the church, the assembly of the saints that God has brought you together with. Paul tells us that Christ is the one who has purchased the church with his own blood, speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28. We do not own the church. We do not add to the church. Jesus builds his church, Matthew 16, 18. And I look at all that's going on today in the church with church growth and all this church growth organization and methodology that is being pumped out. God help the people. You are building your church. The Lord adds daily to his church. And so things are being pumped out. 40 days of doing this program. You will increase your church. 2,000 attendance. I don't want to increase 2,000 attendance. I don't want to increase one person attendance. 
I want God to add to the church. I am the shepherd. I'm called to feed and to preach, to oversee, to pray. And God adds to the church. All I can do is add trouble, <laughs> problems. God had chosen the place of worship for the nation, Shiloh. Notice, secondly, God had given them the manner of worship for the nation and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. Now, the provisions of the tabernacle, as you know, are given to us in the book of Exodus between chapter 5 and 30. They're repeated, and then later on again, but those will give you the, 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 the margins. And um, the, the materials that would be needed would come from the people, by the way, Exodus 25, 3 through 7. As you know, the source of these provisions was the back wages that were taken before they left Egypt. Uh, God told them to ask the Egyptians in, in Exodus 3.21 and 22 and 12.36. And, and they gave them. And they were literally not ripping them off. It was back wages. They had had them slaves all those uh, 430 years. And they are back wages. When they left Egypt, they were wealthy. They had a lot of goods. That's why I don't understand Achan. <laughs> Agreed. Now, the attitude for giving was always a willing heart, Exodus 25, 2. When God began to give material for the tabernacle, he says, those of a willing heart. That's always the case. I hate when people pressure Christians to give. I hate to hear radio programs. You know, if you don't give, we're going to have to get off the air. Praise God. Get off the air. <laughs> we got to help God out. God's late on his payment this month, you know? Listen, God has excellent credit for what he's behind. We don't pressure you. We never will. God has to move on your heart. It has to be willingly. Moses had to restrain the people, remember, in Exodus 36, 3 through 7. They were giving too much. Now, I never had to do that. And I've never heard of a pastor that had to do that. It's only one time it occurs. It's a miracle. In Exodus... The craftsmen would be equally coming from the people in Exodus. God would call them. God would gift them, anoint them, give them talents. He would stir their heart up. They would respond. A holy abu. And we've seen the same in the church. God raises people up. God takes care of it. The priesthood would come from the people. To minister to the Lord, to represent the people to God as the priest went in. And then represent God to the people as they came out. Now the pattern of the tabernacle is also given to us in the same book of Exodus in that section. And from a far distance as you would approach it, you would see a courtyard. And it would be 150 feet long on the north and the south, 75 feet on the east and the west, and seven and a half feet high so you couldn't look in to what was going on. The emphasis would be separation from the things of God to the things of the world. There always has to be a separation. We're consecrated to God. One gate on the east, 30 feet wide. One door in the ark. One way to God. <laughs> then you would see the tabernacle in the middle of the courtyard in Exodus 26, a rectangular box, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 45 feet long. It was made up of two rooms. The first one was the holy place, 15 by 15 high by 30 deep. 
The second is the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15 by 15, a perfect cube. The holy place, the first one, the priest would go in for the daily ministration, for the bread, the light, the oil, all of that. But the second, the Holy of Holies, only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, for the sins of the nation. There were two curtains in the tabernacle, the one at the entrance of the holy place at first, and then the veil between the holy place and the most holy, the separated. The priest could not go in except for once a year. There were four coverings on the tabernacle. The inner curtain was of linen, blue, purple, scarlet, with cherubim, angels all around it. The next layer would be of goat's hair, the third of ram's skin, and the fourth of porpoise or badger for weatherproofing. Ingenious. Now notice that the further you get out from the inner chamber, the uglier the tabernacle gets. <laughs> you want to dwell with God. Because the farther you get out from God, the uglier things get. <laughs> Real simple. There were seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle for service. The altar of brass for sacrifices when you approached the Ark of the Covenant, right there, the tabernacle. It was brass symbolic of judgment. And everything would be sacrificed and laid there. Brass is always symbolic of judgment for sins, trespasses. And next would be the labor of brass, of water. And the priest would wash himself ceremonially. Jesus says, you are washed by the words I have spoken unto you, John 15, 3. He presents to himself a bride without spot, wrinkle, anything by the washing of the water by the word, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Then as you entered the holy place, on the north side would be the table of showbread where the priest would change every week on the Sabbath. Two stacks, six on each one. Eat them, replace them for fresh one. Then on the south you would have the candelabra, the lampstand. It would be lit all the time, oil filled, to give light for the service of God in that first room. Then you had the altar of incense before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy, representing the prayers of the saints as instant rises to God. And then behind the veil stood the Ark of the Covenant, about the size of this pulpit, not as high, probably about this deep. And there was a mercy seat lit upon it with two cherubim on it, one on each side with the wings crossed looking down. And the Ark of the Covenant was a pot of manna, as we said, Aaron's rod that he cast the bud and the two tables of stone. The testimony of what God had done. The priesthood, the provisions, and the law. And God would meet the priests once a year there as he would speak to them from the mercy seat. Yom Kippur. Everything was to be according to the pattern that God had given. Why? Because it wasn't involving just the immediate present. It was involving something of the future. Everything in the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, spoke of Jesus Christ to come. We don't have the time this morning. <laughs> Everything. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Kind of elaborate. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. Every little thing. The primary purpose of the tabernacle for the nation was that Yahweh would dwell and walk in the midst of them. This we are told in Exodus 25, 8 and Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. That God could dwell with the people. God wants to dwell with his people. He's our creator. Pastor Xavier Reese. 
closing with a revealing look into God's building plan for His church from an Old Testament perspective. And this message can be heard again anytime by clicking on the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. Just browse for today's date. You can also request a copy of today's encouraging study from the book of Joshua titled, The Assembly of Faith. As always, it's available on CD for just $4. And why not pass along a copy to someone in your church or Bible study? Once again, you'll be asking for The Assembly of Faith, or simply mention today's date with your request. Get yours by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Well, what do you need when you're going through difficult times? Find out when you join Pastor Xavier Reese bringing more Simple Truths next time. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 